Dove Audio presents The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, read by the author. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded, yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 92 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descended life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. This planet has, or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd, because on the whole it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. And so the problem remained. Lots of the people were mean, and most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place. And some said that even the trees had been a bad move, and that no one should ever have left the oceans. And then, one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth suddenly realised what it was that had been going wrong all this time. And she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place, this time it was right, it would work, and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to a phone to tell anyone about it, a terrible, stupid catastrophe occurred, and the idea was lost forever. This is not her story. But it is the story of that terrible, stupid catastrophe, and some of its consequences. It is also the story of a book a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Not an Earth book, never published on Earth, and until the terrible catastrophe occurred, never seen or even heard of by any Earthman. Nevertheless, a wholly remarkable book. In fact, it was probably the most remarkable book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor, of which no Earthman had ever heard either. Not only is it a wholly remarkable book, it is also a highly successful one. More popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus, better selling than 53 More Things to Do in Zero Gravity, and more controversial than Ulan Kalufid's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters, Where God Went Wrong, Some More of God's Greatest Mistakes, and Who Is This God Person Anyway? In many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, the Hitchhiker's Guide has already supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom. For though it has many omissions, and contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older, more pedestrian work in two important respects. First, it is slightly cheaper, and secondly, it has the words, Don't Panic, inscribed in large, friendly letters on its cover. But the story of this terrible, stupid Thursday, the story of its extraordinary consequences, and the story of how these consequences are inextricably intertwined with this remarkable book, begins very simply. It begins with a house. Chapter 1 
The house stood on a slight rise just on the edge of the village. It stood on its own and looked out over a broad spread of west country farmland. Not a remarkable house by any means. It was about thirty years old, squattish, squarish, made of brick, and had four windows set in the front of a size and proportion which more or less exactly failed to please the eye. The only person for whom the house was in any way special was Arthur Dent, and that was only because it happened to be the one he lived in. He had lived in it for about three years, ever since he had moved out of London because it made him nervous and irritable. He was about thirty as well, tall, dark-haired, and never quite at ease with himself. The thing that used to worry him most was the fact that people always used to ask him what he was looking so worried about. He worked in local radio, which he always used to tell his friends was a lot more interesting than they probably thought. It was too. Most of his friends worked in advertising. On Wednesday night, it had rained very heavily. The lane was wet and muddy. But the Thursday morning sun was bright and clear as it shone on Arthur Dent's house, for what was to be the last time. It hadn't properly registered yet with Arthur that the council wanted to knock it down and build a bypass instead. At eight o'clock on Thursday morning, Arthur didn't feel very good. He woke up blearily, got up, wandered blearily round his room, opened a window, saw a bulldozer, found his slippers, and stomped off to the bathroom to wash. Toothpaste on the brush, so scrub. Shaving mirror pointing at the ceiling. He adjusted it. For a moment, it reflected a second bulldozer through the bathroom window. Properly adjusted, it reflected Arthur Dent's bristles. He shaved them off, washed, dried, and stomped off to the kitchen to find something pleasant to put in his mouth. Kettle, plug, fridge, milk, coffee, yawn. The word bulldozer wandered through his mind for a moment in search of something to connect with. The bulldozer outside the kitchen window was quite a big one. He stared at it. Yellow, he thought, and stomped off back to his bedroom to get dressed. Passing the bathroom, he stopped to drink a large glass of water and another. He began to suspect that he was hungover. Why was he hungover? Had he been drinking the night before? He supposed that he must have been. He caught a glint in the shaving mirror. Yellow, he thought, and stomped onto the bedroom. He stood and thought. The pub, he thought. Oh dear, the pub. He vaguely remembered being angry, angry about something that seemed important. He had been telling people about it, telling people about it at great length. He rather suspected. His clearest visual recollection was of glazed looks on other people's faces. Something about a, a new bypass he had just found out about. It had been in the pipeline for months, only no one seemed to have known about it. Ridiculous. He took a swig of water. It would sort itself out. He had decided. No one wanted a bypass. The council didn't have a leg to stand on. It would sort itself out. God, what a terrible hangover it had earned him, though. He looked at himself in the wardrobe mirror. He stuck out his tongue. Yellow, he thought. The word yellow wandered through his mind in search of something to connect with. Fifteen seconds later, he was out of the house and lying in front of a big yellow bulldozer that was advancing up the garden path. Mister L. Prosser was, as they say, only human. In other words, he was a carbon-based bipedal life form descended from an ape. 
More specifically, he was forty, fat and shabby, and worked for the local council. Curiously enough, though he didn't know it, he was also a direct male line descendant of Genghis Khan, though intervening generations and racial mixing had so juggled his genes that he had no discernible mongoloid characteristics, and the only vestiges left in Mr. L. Prosser of his mighty ancestry were a pronounced stoutness about the tum and a predilection for little fur hats. He was by no means a great warrior. In fact, he was a nervous, worried man. Today he was particularly nervous and worried because something had gone seriously wrong with his job, which was to see that Arthur Dent's house got cleared out of the way before the day was out. Come off it, Mr. Dent, he said. You can't win, you know. You can't lie in front of the bulldozer indefinitely. He tried to make his eyes blaze fiercely, but they just wouldn't do it. Arthur lay in the mud and squelched at him. I'm game, he said. We'll see who rusts first. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it," said Mr. Prosser, gripping his fur hat and rolling it round the top of his head. "This bypass has got to be built, and it's going to be built. First, I've heard of it," said Arthur. "Why's it got to be built?" Mr. Prosser shook his finger at him for a bit, then stopped and put it away again. "What do you mean, why's it got to be built?" he said. "It's a bypass. You've got to build bypasses." Bypasses are devices which allow some people to dash from point A to point B very fast, whilst other people dash from point B to point A very fast. People living at point C, being a point directly in between, are often given to wonder what's so great about point A that so many people from point B are so keen to get there, and what's so great about point B that so many people from point A are so keen to get there. They often wish that people would just once and for all work out where the hell they wanted to be. Mr. Prosser wanted to be at point D. Point D wasn't anywhere in particular. It was just any convenient point, a very long way from points A, B, and C. He would have a nice little cottage at point D, with axes over the door, and spend a pleasant amount of time at point E, which would be the nearest pub to point D. His wife, of course, wanted climbing roses, but he wanted axes. He didn't know why. He just liked axes. He flushed hotly under the derisive grins of the bulldozer drivers. He shifted his weight from foot to foot, but it was equally uncomfortable on each. Obviously, somebody had been appallingly incompetent, and he hoped to God it wasn't him. Mister Prosser said, "You are quite entitled to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time. You know." Appropriate time," hooted Arthur. "Appropriate time. The first I knew about it was when a workman arrived at my house yesterday. I asked him if he'd come to clean the windows, and he said no, he'd come to demolish the house. He didn't tell me straight away, of course. Oh no! First he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then he told me. But Mr. Dent, the plans have been available in the local planning office for the last nine months. Oh yes," said Arthur. Well, as soon as I heard, I went straight round to see them yesterday afternoon. You hadn't exactly gone out of your way to call attention to them, had you? I mean, like actually telling anybody or anything. But the plans are on display. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar to find them. Well, that's the display department, with a torch. Ah, well, the lights had probably gone. So had the stairs. But look, you found the notice, didn't you? Yes," said Arthur. "Yes, I did." It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory, with a sign on the door saying "Beware of the leopard." A cloud passed overhead. 
It cast a shadow over Arthur Dent as he lay propped up on his elbow in the cold mud. It cast a shadow over Arthur Dent's house. Mr. Prosser frowned at it. It's not as if it's a particularly nice house, he said. I'm sorry, but I happen to like it. You like the bypass? Oh, shut up, said Arthur Dent. Shut up and go away and take your bloody bypass with you. You haven't got a leg to stand on and you know it. Mr. Prosser's mouth opened and closed a couple of times, whilst his mind was for a moment filled with inexplicable but terribly attractive visions of Arthur Dent's house being consumed with fire, and Arthur himself running screaming from the blazing ruin with at least three hefty spears protruding from his back. Mr. Prosser was often bothered with visions like these, and they made him feel very nervous. He stuttered for a moment and then pulled himself together. Mr. Dent, he said. Hello, yes, said Arthur. Some factual information for you. Have you any idea how much damage that bulldozer would suffer if I just let it roll straight over you? How much, said Arthur. None at all, said Mr. Prosser and stormed nervously off, wondering why his brain was filled with a thousand hairy horsemen all shouting at him. By a curious coincidence, none at all is exactly how much suspicion the ape descendant Arthur Dent had that one of his closest friends was not descended from an ape, but was in fact from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse, and not from Guildford, as he usually claimed. Arthur Dent had never, ever suspected this. This friend of his had first arrived on the planet Earth some fifteen Earth years previously, and he had worked hard to blend himself into Earth society, with, it must be said, some success. For instance, he had spent those fifteen years pretending to be an out-of-work actor, which was plausible enough. He had made one careless blunder, though, because he had skimped a bit on his preparatory research. The information he had gathered had led him to choose the name Ford Prefect as being nicely inconspicuous. He was not conspicuously tall. His features were striking, but not conspicuously handsome. His hair was wiry and gingerish and brushed backwards from the temples. His skin seemed to be pulled backwards from the nose. There was something very slightly odd about him, but it was difficult to say what it was. Perhaps it was that his eyes didn't seem to blink often enough, and when you talked to him for any length of time, your eyes began involuntarily to water on his behalf. Perhaps it was that he smiled slightly too broadly and gave people the unnerving impression that he was about to go for their neck. He struck most of the friends he had made on earth as an eccentric, but a harmless one, an unruly boozer with some oddish habits. For instance, he would often gate-crash university parties, get badly drunk and start making fun of any astrophysicist he could find till he got thrown out. Sometimes he would get seized with oddly distracted moods and stare into the sky as if hypnotised until someone asked him what he was doing. Then he would start guiltily for a moment, relax and grin. Oh, just looking for flying saucers, he would joke, and everyone would laugh and ask him what sort of flying saucers he was looking for. Green ones, he would reply with a wicked grin, laugh wildly for a moment, and then suddenly lunge for the nearest bar and buy an enormous round of drinks. Evenings like this usually ended badly. Ford would get out of his skull on whiskey, huddle into the corner with some girl, and explain to her in slurred phrases that honestly the colour of the flying saucers didn't matter that much, really. Thereafter, staggering semi-paralytic down the night streets, he would often ask passing policemen if they knew the way to Beetlejuice.
the policeman would usually say something like, Don't you think it's time you went off home, sir? I'm trying to, baby, I'm trying to, is what Ford invariably replied on these occasions. In fact, what he was really looking for when he stared distractedly into the sky was any kind of flying saucer at all. The reason he said green was that green was the traditional space livery of the Beetlejuice trading scouts. Ford Prefect was desperate that any flying saucer at all would arrive soon, because fifteen years is a long time to get stranded anywhere, particularly somewhere as mind-bogglingly dull as the Earth. Ford wished that a flying saucer would arrive soon, because he knew how to flag flying saucers down and get lifts from them. He knew how to see the marvels of the universe for less than thirty Altarian dollars a day. In fact, Ford Prefect was a roving researcher for that wholly remarkable book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Human beings are great adapters, and by lunchtime, life in the environs of Arthur's house had settled into a steady routine. It was Arthur's accepted role to lie squelching in the mud, making occasional demands to see his lawyer, his mother, or a good book. It was Mr. Prosser's accepted role to tackle Arthur, with the occasional new ploy, such as the For the Public Good talk or the March of Progress talk, or the They knock my house down once you know, never look back talk, and various other cajoleries and threats. And it was the bulldozer driver's accepted role to sit around drinking coffee and experimenting with union regulations to see how they could turn the situation to their financial advantage. The earth moved slowly in its diurnal course. The sun was beginning to dry out the mud that Arthur lay in. A shadow moved across him again. Hello, Arthur, said the shadow. Arthur looked up, and squinting into the sun, was startled to see Ford Prefect standing above him. Ford! Hello, how are you? Uh, fine, said Ford. Look, are you busy? Am I busy? exclaimed Arthur. Well, I've just got all these bulldozers and things to lie in front of, because they'll knock my house down if I don't, but other than that, well, well, no, not especially. Why? They don't have sarcasm on Beetlejuice, and Ford Prefect often failed to notice it unless he was concentrating. He said, Good, is there anywhere we can talk? What? said Arthur Dent. For a few seconds Ford seemed to ignore him, and stared fixedly into the sky like a rabbit trying to get run over by a car. Then suddenly he squatted down beside Arthur. We've got to talk, he said urgently. Fine, said Arthur, talk and drink said Ford. It's vitally important that we talk and drink. Now, we'll go to the pub in the village. He looked into the sky again, nervous, expectant. Look, don't you understand? shouted Arthur. He pointed at Prosser. That man wants to knock my house down. Ford glanced at him, puzzled. Well, he can do it while you're away, can't he? he asked. But I don't want him to. Ah, look, what's the matter with you, Ford? said Arthur. Nothing. Nothing's the matter. Listen to me. I've got to tell you the most important thing you've ever heard. I've got to tell you now, and I've got to tell you in the saloon bar of the horse and groom. But why? Because you're going to need a very stiff drink. Ford stared at Arthur, and Arthur was astonished to find his will beginning to weaken. He didn't realise that this was because of an old drinking game that Ford had learnt to play in the hyperspace ports that serve the Madronite mining belts in the star system of Orion Beta. The game was not unlike the Earth game called Indian Wrestling, and was played like this. Two contestants would sit either side of a table with a glass in front of each of them. 
Between them will be placed a bottle of Jank's spirit, as immortalized in that ancient Orion mining song. Oh, don't give me none more of that old Jank's spirit. No, don't give me none more of that old Jank's spirit. For my head will fly, my tongue will lie, my eyes will fry, and I may die. Won't you pour me one more of that sinful old Jank's spirit? Each of the contestants would then concentrate their will on the bottle and attempt to tip it and pour spirit into the glass of his opponent, who would then have to drink it. The bottle would then be refilled. The game would be played again and again. Once you started to lose, you would probably keep losing, because one of the effects of Jank's spirit is to depress telepsychic power. As soon as the predetermined quantity had been consumed, the final loser would have to perform a forfeit, which was usually obscenely biological. Ford Prefect usually played to lose. Ford stared at Arthur, who began to think that perhaps he did want to go to the horse and groom after all. But what about my house? he asked plaintively. Ford looked across to Mr. Prosser, and suddenly a wicked thought struck him. He wants to knock your house down. Yes, he wants to build, and he can't, because you're lying in front of his bulldozer. Yes, and I'm sure we can come to some arrangement, said Ford. Excuse me, he shouted. Mr. Prosser, who was arguing with a spokesman for the bulldozer drivers about whether or not Arthur Dent constituted a mental health hazard and how much they should get paid if he did, looked around. He was surprised and slightly alarmed to see that Arthur had company. Hello? Yes? he called. Has Mr. Dent come to his senses yet? Can we for the moment, called Ford, assume that he hasn't? Well, sighed Mr. Prosser. And can we also assume, said Ford, that he's going to be staying here all day? So, so all your men are going to be standing around all day doing nothing? Could be, could be. Well, if you're resigned to doing that anyway, you don't actually need him to lie here all the time, do you? What? You don't, said Ford patiently, actually need him here. Mr. Prosser thought about this. Well, no, uh, not as such, he said. Not exactly need. Prosser was worried. He thought that one of them wasn't making a lot of sense. Ford said, so if you'd just like to take it as red that he's actually here, then he and I could slip off down to the pub for half an hour. How does that sound? Mr. Prosser thought it sounded perfectly potty. Uh, that sounds uh, perfectly reasonable, he said in a reassuring tone of voice, wondering who he was trying to reassure. And if you want to pop off for a quick one yourself later on, said Ford, we can always cover for you in return. Oh, thank you very much, said Mr. Prosser, who no longer knew how to play this at all. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, that's uh, very kind. He frowned, then smiled, then tried to do both at once, failed, grasped hold of his fur hat and rolled it fitfully round the top of his head. He could only assume that he had just won. So, continued Ford Prefect, if you'd just like to come over here and lie down. What? said Mr. Prosser. Ah, oh, I'm sorry, said Ford. Perhaps I hadn't made myself fully clear. Somebody's got to lie in front of the bulldozers, haven't they? Or there won't be anything to stop them driving into Mr. Dent's house, will there? What? said Mr. Prosser again. It's very simple, said Ford. My client, Mr. Dent, says that he will stop lying here in the mud on the sole condition that you come and take over from him. What are you talking about? said Arthur, but Ford nudged him with his shoe to be quiet. You want me, said Prosser, spelling out this new thought to himself, 
to come and lie there. Yes. In front of the bulldozer. Yes. Instead of Mr. Dent. Yes. In the mud. In, as you say, the mud. As soon as Mr. Prosser realised that he was substantially the loser after all, it was as if a weight lifted itself off his shoulders. This was more like the world as he knew it. He sighed. In return for which you will take Mr. Dent with you down to the pub. That's it," said Ford. "That's it exactly." Mr. Prosser took a few nervous steps forward and stopped. "Promise," he said. "Promise," said Ford. He turned to Arthur. "Come on," he said to him. "Get up and let the man lie down." Arthur stood up, feeling as if he was in a dream. Ford beckoned to Prosser, who sadly, awkwardly, sat down in the mud. He felt that his whole life was some kind of dream, and he sometimes wondered whose it was and whether they were enjoying it. The mud folded itself round his bottom and his arms and oozed into his shoes. Ford looked at him severely, and no sneaky knocking Mr. Dent's house down while he's away. All right, he said. The mere thought, growled Mr. Prosser, hadn't even begun to speculate. He continued, settling himself back, about the merest possibility of crossing my mind. He saw the bulldozer driver's union representative approaching, and let his head sink back and closed his eyes. He was trying to marshal his arguments for proving that he did not now constitute a mental health hazard himself. He was far from certain about this. His mind seemed to be full of noise, horses, smoke, and the stench of blood. This always happened when he felt miserable or put upon, and he had never been able to explain it to himself. In a high dimension of which we know nothing, the mighty Khan bellowed with rage. But Mr. Prosser only trembled slightly and whimpered. He began to feel little pricks of water behind his eyelids. Bureaucratic cock-ups, angry men lying in mud, indecipherable strangers handing out inexplicable humiliations, and an unidentified army of horsemen laughing at him in his head. What a day! What a day! Ford Prefect knew that it didn't matter a pair of dingoes' kidneys whether Arthur's house got knocked down or not. Now, Arthur remained very worried. But can we trust him? He said. Myself, I trust him to the end of the earth," said Ford. "Oh yes," said Arthur. "And how far's that?" "About twelve minutes away," said Ford. "Come on, I need a drink." Chapter two. Here's what the Encyclopedia Galactica has to say about alcohol. It says that alcohol is a colourless, volatile liquid formed by the fermentation of sugars, and also notes its intoxicating effect on certain carbon-based life forms. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy also mentions alcohol. It says that the best drink in existence is the Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. It says that the effect of drinking a Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster is like having your brain smashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped round a large gold brick. The guide also tells you on which planets the best Pan Galactic Gargle Blasters are mixed, how much you can expect to pay for one, and what voluntary organisations exist to help you rehabilitate afterwards. The guide even tells you how you can mix one yourself. Take the juice from one bottle of that old jank spirit. It says, pour into it one measure of water from the seas of Santraginus Five. Oh, that Santraginian seawater! It says, oh, those Santraginian fish.
allow three cubes of arcturin megagin to melt into the mixture. It must be properly iced or the benzene is lost. Allow four litres of phalian marsh gas to bubble through it in memory of all those happy hikers who have died of pleasure in the marshes of Phalia. Over the back of a silver spoon float a measure of quallactin hypermint extract, redolent of all the heady odours of the dark quallactin zones, subtle, sweet and mystic. Drop in the tooth of an Algolian sun tiger. Watch it dissolve, spreading the fires of the Algolian suns deep into the heart of the drink. Sprinkle zamphor. Add an olive. Drink, but very carefully. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy sells rather better than the Encyclopedia Galactica. Six pints of bitter, said Ford Prefect to the barman of the horse and groom, and quickly, please, the world's about to end. The barman of the horse and groom didn't deserve this sort of treatment. He was a dignified old man. He pushed his glasses up his nose and blinked at Ford Prefect. Ford ignored him and stared out of the window, so the barman looked instead at Arthur, who shrugged helplessly and said nothing. So the barman said, Oh, yes, sir, nice weather for it, and started pulling pints. He tried again. Can I watch the match this afternoon, then? Ford glanced round at him. No, no point, he said and looked back out of the window. Well, sir, the foregone conclusion, then, you reckon, sir? said the barman. Arsenal without a chance? No, no, said Ford. It's just that the world's about to end. Oh, yes, sir, so you said, said the barman, looking over his glasses, this time at Arthur. Lucky escape for Arsenal if it did. Ford looked back at him, genuinely surprised. No, not really, he said. He frowned. The barman breathed in heavily. There you are, sir. Six pints, he said. Arthur smiled at him wanly and shrugged again. He turned and smiled wanly at the rest of the pub, just in case any of them had heard what was going on. None of them had, and none of them could understand what he was smiling at them for. A man sitting next to Ford at the bar looked at the two men, looked at the six pints, did a swift burst of mental arithmetic, arrived at an answer he liked, and grinned a stupid, hopeful grin at them. Get off, said Ford, they're ours, giving him a look that would have made an Algolian sun-tiger get on with what it was doing. Ford slapped a ten-pound note on the bar. He said, keep the change. What, from a tenner? Thank you, sir. You've got ten minutes left to spend it. The barman decided simply to walk away for a bit. Ford, said Arthur, would you please tell me what the hell is going on? Drink up, said Ford, you've got three pints to get through. Three pints? said Arthur, at lunchtime. The man next to Ford grinned and nodded happily. Ford ignored him. He said, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. Oh, very deep, said Arthur. You should send that into the Reader's Digest. They've got a page for people like you. Drink up. Why three pints all of a sudden? Muscle relaxant, you'll need it. Muscle relaxant? A muscle relaxant. Arthur stared into his beer. Did I do anything wrong today, he said. Why well, has the world always been like this, and I've been too wrapped up in myself to notice? All right, said Ford. I'll try to explain. Now, how long have we known each other? How long? Arthur thought. Uh, about five years, maybe six. Most of it seemed to make some kind of sense at the time. All right, said Ford. How would you react if I said that I'm not from Guildford, after all, but from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse? 
Arthur shrugged in a so-so sort of way. I don't know, he said, taking a pull of beer. Why, do you think it's the sort of thing you're likely to say? Ford gave up. It really wasn't worth bothering at the moment, what with the world being about to end. He just said, drink up. He added, perfectly factually, the world's about to end. Arthur gave the rest of the pub another one smile. The rest of the pub frowned at him. A man waved at him to stop smiling at them and mind his own business. This must be Thursday, said Arthur to himself, sinking low over his beer. I never could get the hang of Thursdays. Chapter 3 On this particular Thursday, something was moving quietly through the ionosphere many miles above the surface of the planet. Several somethings, in fact. Several dozen huge, yellow, chunky, slab-like somethings, huge as office blocks, silent as birds. They soared with ease, basking in electromagnetic rays from the star Sol, biding their time, grouping, preparing. The planet beneath them was almost perfectly oblivious of their presence, which was just how they wanted it for the moment. The huge, yellow somethings went unnoticed at Goonhilly, they passed over Cape Canaveral without a blip. Woomera and Jodrell Bank looked straight through them, which was a pity because it was exactly the sort of thing they'd been looking for all these years. The only place they registered at all was on a small black device called a sub-ether sensomatic, which winked away quietly to itself. It nestled in the darkness inside a leather satchel which Ford Prefect habitually wore slung around his neck. The contents of Ford Prefect's satchel were quite interesting, in fact, and would have made any Earth physicist's eyes pop out of his head, which is why he always concealed them by keeping a couple of dog-eared scripts for plays he pretended he was auditioning for stuffed in the top. Besides the sub-ether sensomatic and the scripts, he had an electronic thumb, a short, squat, black rod, smooth and matte, with a couple of flat switches and dials at one end. He also had a device which looked rather like a largish electronic calculator. This had about a hundred tiny flat press buttons, and a screen about four inches square on which any one of a million pages could be summoned at a moment's notice. It looked insanely complicated, and this is one of the reasons why the snug plastic cover it fitted into had the words, Don't Panic, printed on it in large, friendly letters. The other reason was that this device was, in fact, that most remarkable of all books ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The reason why it was published in the form of a micro-sub-meson electronic component is that if it were printed in normal book form, an interstellar hitchhiker would require several inconveniently large buildings to carry it around in. Beneath that, in Ford Prefect's satchel, were a few ball pens, a notepad, and a largish bath towel from Marks and Spencer. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a few things to say on the subject of towels. A towel, it says, is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Partly, it has great practical value. You can wrap it round yourself for warmth as you bound across the cold moons of Jaglan Beta. You can lie on it on the brilliant marble-sanded beaches of Santraginus V, inhaling the heady sea vapours. You can sleep under it, beneath the stars which shine so redly on the desert world of Cacrafoon. Use it to sail a mini-raft down the slow, heavy river Moth. Wet it for use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
wrap it round your head to ward off noxious fumes, or avoid the gaze of the ravenous bug-blatter beast of Trull, a mind-bogglingly stupid animal. It assumes that if you can't see it, it can't see you. Daft as a brush, but very, very ravenous. You can wave your towel in emergencies as a distress signal, and, of course, dry yourself off with it, if it still seems to be clean enough. More importantly, a towel has immense psychological value. For some reason, if a strag, strag means non-hitchhiker, discovers that a hitchhiker has his towel with him, he will automatically assume that he is also in possession of a toothbrush, face flannel, soap, tin of biscuits, flask, compass, map, ball of string, gnat spray, wet weather gear, spacesuit, etc., etc. Furthermore, the strag will then happily lend the hitchhiker any of these or a dozen other items that the hitchhiker might accidentally have lost. What the strag will think is that any man who can hitch the length and breadth of the galaxy, rough it, slum it, struggle against terrible odds, win through, and still know where his towel is, is clearly a man to be reckoned with. Hence a phrase which has passed into hitchhiking slang, as in, Hey, you sass that hoopy Ford Prefect? There's a fruit who really knows where his towel is. Sass means know, be aware of, meet, have sex with. Hoopy means really together guy. Fruit means really amazingly together guy. Nestling quietly on top of the towel in Ford Prefect's satchel, the Sabitha Sensomatic began to wink more quickly. Miles above the surface of the planet, the huge yellow somethings began to fan out. At Jodrell Bank, someone decided it was time for a nice, relaxing cup of tea. You got a towel with you, said Ford suddenly to Arthur. Arthur, struggling through his third pint, looked around at him. Why? What? No, should I have? He had given up being surprised. There didn't seem to be any point any longer. Ford clicked his tongue in irritation. Drink up, he urged. At that moment, the dull sound of a rumbling crash from outside filtered through the low murmur of the pub, through the sound of the jukebox, through the sound of the man next to Ford, hiccuping over the whiskey Ford had eventually bought him. Arthur choked on his beer and leapt to his feet. What's that? he yelped. Don't worry, said Ford, they haven't started yet. Oh, thank God for that, said Arthur, and relaxed. "'It's probably just your house being knocked down,' said Ford, downing his last pint. "'What?' shouted Arthur. Suddenly Ford's spell was broken. Arthur looked wildly around him and ran to the window. "'My God, they are! They're knocking my house down! What the hell am I doing in the pub, Ford?' "'It hardly makes any difference at this stage,' said Ford. "'Let them have their fun.' "'Fun!' yelped Arthur. "'Fun!' He quickly checked out of the window again that they were talking about the same thing. "'Damn their fun!' He hooted and ran out of the pub, furiously waving a nearly empty beer glass. He made no friends at all in the pub that lunchtime. Stop, you vandals, you homewreckers! bawled Arthur. You half-crazed busygods, stop, will you? Ford would have to go after him. Turning quickly to the barman, he asked for four packets of peanuts. There you are, sir, said the barman, slapping the packets on the bar. It's one pound sixty pence, if you'd be so kind. Ford was very kind. He gave the barman another ten-pound note and told him to keep the change. The barman looked at it and then looked at Ford. He suddenly shivered. He experienced a momentary sensation that he didn't understand, because no one on earth had ever experienced it before. In moments of great stress, every life-form that exists gives out a tiny subliminal signal. 
this signal simply communicates an exact and almost pathetic sense of how far that being is from the place of his birth. On earth it is never possible to be further than 16,000 miles from your birthplace, which isn't really very far. So such signals are too minute to be noticed. Ford Prefect was at this moment under great stress, and he was born 600 light-years away in the near vicinity of Betelgeuse. The barman reeled for a moment, hit by a shocking, incomprehensible sense of distance. He didn't know what it meant, but he looked at Ford Prefect with a new sense of respect, almost awe. Are you serious, sir? he said in a small whisper which had the effect of silencing the pub. You think the world's going to end? Yes, said Ford. But this afternoon? Ford had recovered himself. He was at his flippest. Yes, he said gaily, in less than two minutes, I would estimate. The barman couldn't believe this conversation he was having, but he couldn't believe the sensation he had just had either. Isn't there anything we can do about it then? he said. No, nothing, said Ford, stuffing the peanuts into his pocket. Someone in the hush bar suddenly laughed raucously at how stupid everyone had become. The man sitting next to Ford was a bit sozzled by now. His eyes weaved their way up to Ford. I thought, he said, that if the world was going to end, we were meant to lie down or put a paper bag over our head or something. If you like, yes, said Ford. That's what they told us in the army, said the man, and his eyes began the long trek back towards his whiskey. Will that help? asked the barman. No, said Ford, and gave him a friendly smile. Excuse me, he said, I've got to go. With a wave, he left. The pub was silent for a moment longer, and then, embarrassingly enough, the man with the raucous laugh did it again. The girl he had dragged along to the pub with him had grown to loathe him dearly over the last hour, and it would probably have been a great satisfaction to her to know that in a minute and a half or so he would suddenly evaporate into a whiff of hydrogen, ozone, and carbon monoxide. However, when the moment came, she would be too busy evaporating herself to notice. The barman cleared his throat. He heard himself say, Last orders, please. The huge yellow machines began to sink downwards and to move faster. Ford knew they were there. This wasn't the way he had wanted it. Running up the lane, Arthur had nearly reached his house. He didn't notice how cold it had suddenly become. He didn't notice the wind. He didn't notice the sudden irrational squall of rain. He didn't notice anything but the caterpillar bulldozers crawling over the rubble that had been his home. You barbarians! he yelled. I'll sue the council for every penny it's got. I'll have you hung, drawn and quartered uh, and whipped and, and boiled and, until, until, uh, until you've had enough. Ford was running after him, very fast, very, very fast. And then I'll do it again, yelled Arthur, and when I've finished, I will take all the bits and I will jump on them. Arthur didn't notice that the men were running from the bulldozers. He didn't notice that Mr. Prosser was staring hectically into the sky. What Mr. Prosser had noticed was that huge yellow somethings were screaming through the clouds, impossibly huge yellow somethings. And I will carry on jumping on them, yelled Arthur, still running, until I get blisters, or I can think of anything even more unpleasant to do, and then... Arthur tripped and fell headlong, rolled and landed flat on his back. At last he noticed that something was going on. His finger shot upwards. What the hell's that? he shrieked.
whatever it was, raced across the sky in its monstrous yellowness, tore the sky apart with mind-buggering noise, and leapt off into the distance, leaving the gaping air to shut behind it with a bang that drove your ears six feet into your skull. Another one followed and did exactly the same thing, only louder. It's difficult to say exactly what the people on the surface of the planet were doing now because they didn't really know what they were doing themselves. None of it made a lot of sense. Running into houses, running out of houses, howling noiselessly at the noise. All around the world, city streets exploded with people. Cars slewed into each other as the noise fell on them, and then rolled off like a tidal wave over hills and valleys, deserts and oceans, seeming to flatten everything it hit. Only one man stood and watched the sky stood with terrible sadness in his eyes and rubber bungs in his ears. He knew exactly what was happening and had known ever since his subitha sensomatic had started winking in the dead of night beside his pillow and woken him with a start. It was what he had waited for all these years, but when he had deciphered the signal pattern sitting alone in his small, dark room, a coldness had gripped him and squeezed his heart. Of all the races in all of the galaxy who could have come and said a big hello to planet Earth, he thought, didn't it just have to be the Vogons? Still, he knew what he had to do. As the Vogon craft screamed through the air high above him, he opened his satchel. He threw away a copy of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. He threw away a copy of Godspell. He wouldn't need them where he was going. Everything was ready. Everything was prepared. He knew where his towel was. A sudden silence hit the earth. If anything, it was worse than the noise. For a while, nothing happened. The great ships hung motionless in the sky over every nation on earth. Motionless they hung, huge, heavy, steady in the sky, a blasphemy against nature. Many people went straight into shock as their minds tried to encompass what they were looking at, as ships hung in the sky in much the same way that bricks don't. And still nothing happened. Then there was a slight whisper, a sudden spacious whisper of open, ambient sound. Every hi-fi set in the world, every radio, every television, every cassette recorder, every woofer, every tweeter, every mid-range driver in the world, quietly turned itself on. Every tin can, every dustbin, every window, every car, every wine glass, every sheet of rusty metal became activated as an acoustically perfect sounding board. Before the earth passed away, it was going to be treated to the very ultimate in sound reproduction, the greatest public address system ever built. But there was no concert, no music, no fanfare, just a simple message. People of Earth, your attention, please, a voice said. And it was wonderful. Wonderful, perfect, quadraphonic sound, a distortion level so low as to make a brave man weep. This is Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council, the voice continued. As you will no doubt be aware... The plans for development of the outlying regions of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspatial express route through your star system. And regrettably, your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. The process will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Thank you. The PA died away. 
uncomprehending terror settled on the watching people of Earth. The terror moved slowly through the gathered crowds as if they were iron filings on a sheet of board and a magnet was moving beneath them. Panic sprouted again, desperate, fleeing panic. But there was nowhere to flee to. Observing this, the Vogons turned on their PA again. It said, There's no point in acting all surprised about it. All the planning charts and demolition orders have been on display in your local planning department in Alpha Centauri for 50 of your Earth years, so you've had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaint, and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. The PA fell silent again, and its echo drifted off across the land. The huge ships turned slowly in the sky with easy power. On the underside of each, a hatchway opened an empty black square. By this time, somebody somewhere must have manned a radio transmitter, located a wavelength, and broadcast a message back to the Vogon ships to plead on behalf of the planet. Nobody ever heard what they said. They only heard the reply. The PA slammed back into life again. The voice was annoyed. It said, What do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centauri? For heaven's sake, mankind, it's only four light years away, you know. I'm sorry, but if you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs, that's your own lookout. Energize the demolition beams. Light poured out of the hatchways. I don't know, said the voice on the PA. Apathetic bloody planet and no sympathy at all. It cut off. There was a terrible, ghastly silence. There was a terrible ghastly noise. There was a terrible, ghastly silence. The Vogon constructor fleet coasted away into the inky, starry void.